You're listening to the Sojourn Montrose Sermon Podcast. To get connected at Sojourn Montrose, visit our website, sojournmontrose.org. This morning, and as I said at the very beginning of the gathering, we'd love to connect, and so the easiest way to do that is as we conclude this morning, just meet us at the map in the hallway to my right, your left, and one of our staff members or leaders will meet you there and kind of walk you through what our communities are. We call them neighborhood parishes and where they are in the neighborhood and what time they meet and things like that. Um, And uh, a couple of additional reminders this week. We have a prayer gathering at 7.30, so there is no parish gathering, most likely. Um, Prayer gathering instead. Your parish is meeting at the prayer gathering at 7.30 on Wednesday. Um, Tonight, we have a members meeting, so if you're a member or you're planning to join today, um, we'd love for you to come to that members meeting, but about 45 minutes, and we've got some exciting information about a space decision that we want to lay in front of our members And then you should have gotten this as you sat down. This is a coaster inviting you to our All Sojourn Sunday Gathering, which just says on October 1st, Sunday, October 1st, we won't be here. We'll all be at Sojourn Heights with every other sojourn in the city. All five of us will gather together um, to worship the Lord together. Um, and so if you would love to, even if you're new, we'd love for you to join us there. And if you, um, if you like the sermon today, I'll be preaching. If you don't, um, just sleep in that day. Uh, <laughs> so yeah, would, would love for you to, to come. And, and really, actually, we'll be on that Sunday, we'll be wrapping up a sermon series that we start today. It's a very short three-week sermon series um, called uh, Time. We're, we're preaching on time, which, which might seem like an choice, but the reality is that we obviously are all constantly interacting with time. We are bound by time. We are shaped by our past and by our beliefs and hopes regarding the future. Time might be the thing that I might argue that we struggle with the most. Maybe it's a past story that's on repeat in your head or an unmet dream or hope that fills your head at night. Uh, or, or right now, maybe it's this busy schedule that you can't seem to get freedom from. Uh, uh, maybe it's an acute awareness of the rate that time is passing, whether that's fast or slow. Um, or, or maybe there's a complete obliviousness to time in your life, and you're trying to get a hold on your time. But, but regardless, time shapes us, right? It, it shapes us. It shapes what we think about the future, how we deal with the past, and what's going on with us right now. And the early church structured herself to embrace time and root herself in time and space in a way that both both acknowledges the past and anticipates the future. And and Christianity um, has done this through centuries, and and we really, as a church that practices liturgy and sacrament, all these things, like think about our, our gathering so far. We're called to worship in the present, but in the confession, what do we do? We dwell on what's gone in the past. And in the assurance, we remember that we're forgiven now. At the table, we anticipate a future. At the benediction, we're sent for a future mission, right? So these, the liturgy even roots us in time, and that's why it exists. And Christianity is unique among religions for a lot of reasons, but primarily one uniqueness is that our God entered into and experienced time in Christ, does that uniqueness strike you as interesting this morning? Like that, that God who is timeless, who's not bound by time, right? The, the preeminence of Christ means that he was God in triune form, was always and always has been and always will be, yet in the incarnation, God entered into time and therefore let himself be bound by time. 
in a way that he experienced age and sleep and sorrow and hunger. So over the next three weeks, very, very short, but over the next three weeks, we're going to look at three topics, the past, the future, and then together as Sojourn Houston, we'll look at the now, the present. How do the past and future intersect in this current, current moment? Um, and so this morning, we're looking at the past and thinking about how the Bible informs us, how God's word informs us of how we should relate to our past. And my argument this morning is that we have a very disordered relationship with our past, um, and I think that's not very controversial. So first, let me, let, let's pause in prayer and, and even just thinking about prayer in time. Prayer is a discipline that, um, that really acknowledges the present moment before God, right? Like what prayer does is bring your past, it gathers up your past and your future into the present moment, places us before the timeless throne of God. So let's pray, and then we'll jump into this morning's sermon. Lord, we, um, we worship you as as the eternal Father, eternally loving the Son, eternally pouring out the Spirit of love. Um, We worship you in that you entered into our timeline, whether that's in our own salvation stories or in the history of the world, that you walked and felt the passing of time. You walked the earth, felt passing, felt tiredness, felt what it's like to be in a human body that experiences time, and more than just felt it, you suffered in it. Wow, Lord, I pray that we would, um, in reconciling with, or or even like facing our pasts a little bit this morning, I pray that you would be gracious and kind and meet us there. And, And next week, as we look to the future, I pray that that would stir up hope and anticipation in us, not dread. And in three weeks, when we feel how do, we inform, how do we live now for you? How do we live now in light of these things? Lord, I pray that you just meet us in your grace and kindness throughout this sermon series. It would be practical and helpful. Um, and from you, we pray this trusting you in the moment. In your name we pray, amen. Well, my guess is that if you stop right now and consider your past, if you're asked to consider your past, that maybe a lot of different things or feelings or maybe one thing comes primarily to mind. Um, maybe, maybe feelings well up in within you. Maybe, maybe joy comes to your mind. Maybe sorrow comes to your mind. Maybe bitterness, maybe gratitude. There are likely past events that are marking your current season, right? Like, so maybe it's not something that you've continuously struggle, maybe it's not an event that you've continuously struggled with regarding your past, but maybe just in this particular season, there's something that happened in your past that you just can't shake. You just can't shake a either anger towards or a sadness towards or a longing for again. Something you're working through that has happened to you, whether it's serious and traumatic or, or, or if it's something that was said or done last night or this weekend. It doesn't have to be egregious. Maybe it's just something you said that you wish you didn't say or something that was said to you that you wish wasn't said to you. As humans, it's really difficult for us to not have a relationship with our past. I think it's just, it's just part of our, our image bearerness or humanity. But I would argue that as humans and especially as sinful fallen humans, our relationship with our past is broken or disordered 
We have an unhealthy relationship with the person we have been leading up to this moment, whether that's great esteem for that person or great disdain for the person we've been, or just sadness, right? Um, Far from condemning or judging, I'm right here with you. My past is complicated. So this morning, as we talk about our relationship with our past and how that relationship is disordered, I want us to turn to Scripture to see how Scripture, how God's Word treats our past and reframes our disordered relationship with time, particularly time gone by, how Scripture invites us to see our past differently and how God has redeemed our past and I'm going to argue there are two broad buckets with, with which how we view or in which how we view our past, how we relate to our past. The two buckets are this shame and nostalgia. These are, again, this is a broad, these are broad paint strokes. These are broad buckets. Shame considers the past with failure. It dwells on the bad, the mistakes, the sorrow, the guilt, the sin of the past. Shame dwells on past sin, whether that was done by you or sin done to you. Shame dwells on that. So sometimes in the shame category, we feel guilt or we feel anger or frustration or apathy regarding what's gone on in our past. And in the nostalgia category, on the other hand, considers the past with great longing or great joy. In fact, nostalgia yearns for the days gone by the friendships we had, the community we had, the childhood we experienced, the innocence, the wonder, the safety, the comfort of the past. Nostalgia includes often sadness that those things are gone or, or wonderlust, this feeling that I need to change things in order to make them more how like they were in my past when it was good. I need to change my current, I need to move, I need to go travel, I need to do this, experience that so that I can recapture the feeling of my past the youth of my past, find out who I really am, my true inner young self, right? This is, again, an oversimplification. I'm no psychologist. But uh, these are complex emotions in two broad buckets. Shame, a negative view of the past. Nostalgia, a positive view of the past. But both disordered views of the past when they control our present. Even so, let's look at these two buckets together with examples from Scripture for both. And I'm going to begin with shame and turn to John's gospel where we see Jesus interact directly with shame when he encounters a Samaritan woman drawing water at a well. Let me read you the story in John 4 verse 7. It says this, A woman from Samaria came to draw water and Jesus said to her, Give me a drink, for his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask me for a drink, a woman of Samaria? For Jews had no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water from, and the well is deep. Where do you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. And Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks this water from the well will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up into eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water again. And this is where shame enters the story. Jesus says to her, go call your husband and come here. And the woman answered him, I have no husband. And Jesus said, you're right in saying I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. 
what you have said is true. The woman said to him, sir, I perceive that you're a prophet. So this woman has a past, right? She has a past. She's ashamed of her past. She's when, when in direct confrontation with her past by God, by this at least who she esteems as a prophet, I, I don't have a husband, right? Like you can, you can almost sense the shame that wells up in her. She goes back into town. The story continues and tells everyone that a man came to her and told her all that she ever did. And she was in the town, we find out, known for her past. She was known by the events of her past, which meant she was a pariah. She was an outcast. She was isolated. She was seen as unworthy, certainly in the town's eyes. But what had become part of her story had become part of her identity. Her, her story had become who she was, not just her past, but who she was. Shame is particularly powerful. It's more than just regret. It's this feeling of inability to rise above the things that she has done or things that we have done or things that have been done to us. Unable to rise above the way we've acted, the sins we've committed, the sins that have been committed towards us, the relationships we have broken, relationships of abuse or abandonment, whether received or delivered. And, and the scars, they mark us and they become part of this broken record that's on repeat in our heads, replaying those old failures and sorrows over and over and over again in a way that we start to associate with them so closely that they just are who we are. So the woman at the well is shame. She's ashamed of who she, she is her past, She's become her past. Shame becomes the only way that we can view the past. The woman that well marked herself by her past. I know I have a tendency to do this too. My guess is that there's many of us in the room that although we've, we've reconciled um, maybe as Christians that we're forgiven, that still deep down there's something that's telling us I still am what I did. I still am what I did. Or maybe you're not a believer in the room and that just is true for you. How are we not what we've done? How is she not what she's done? That's shame. Then there's nostalgia. I'm going to deal with these with the gospel in a moment if you're not. <laughs> but next there's nostalgia. Read with me Exodus 16 verses 2 and 3. The whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness, and the people of Israel said to them, would that we have died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt when we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full. For you, Moses, have brought us into the wilderness to kill the whole assembly with hunger." Shifting to the Old Testament, these Israelites had been freed from slavery and death and bondage and being ruled over, enslaved by the Egyptian leaders. They had been freed from that by God through Moses. They had been brought through, through miracles, through this miraculous parting of the ocean, the Red Sea, and they were brought into the wilderness and they were told by God through Moses and Aaron, you're but a short journey away from a promised land, a land flowing with milk and honey. Listen to me, follow my voice, you're already freed. Just obey and we'll get there. This is their reality. And God had told them he would provide for them, that they would be his people, he would be their God, that he would dwell among them, and that in his dwelling among them, he would bless the entire nations, he would bless the world through his people, the Israelites. And yet, here they are, they've barely started their journey, and they turn to nostalgia. In the wilderness, as we might know, food and water are hard to come by. And so the people, when they start to get a little hungry, 
They yearned to be back in Egypt where they were, yes, in slavery and bondage, but at least they had meat and bread. It's literally what they say. Oh, that we were back in slavery and we had meat. They look back on Egypt with this nostalgic yearning, rose-colored glasses, right? Not remembering how bad their plight was in Egypt, not remembering that they were suffering and dying at the hand of their captors. In fact, they do remember that part. They say, oh, that we would have just died there. At least our bellies would have been full. They yearn to be back in Egypt. In fact, we're going to see Israel look back throughout the Old Testament. They do this in Numbers again. They yearn to be back in Egypt time and time and time again. The sad irony is that every time they do this, they deny, the, they deny God, the one who freed them, the glory due his name. And as a result, whenever they yearn to be back, they are barred a little bit more from entering the promised land. They, it, God delays their entering the promised land every time they bring this nostalgia to him and say, oh, that we were back in Egypt. Oh, that we were back in sin. Oh, that we were back in slavery. Oh, that we were back with our captives, our captors. The promised land, if only they would be patient and obedient and trust that God had good things for them, they would have been in that land already. Instead, in disobedience, they fixed their eyes and thoughts on the past. They yearned to be returned to what we know was not better. Horrible slavery and bondage and death. Nostalgia is powerful. Maybe you don't yearn for days that were particularly bad like the Israels do, but, but aren't we guilty of this as well? We can look at our current circumstances and instead of trusting the Lord in his goodness in the present, even if we're suffering, instead of trusting the Lord in our current season, we turn and fix our eyes and, and daydream about the past and how great it was. We have a lot of younger members who are in, their, uh, in our congregation just starting their careers. And I hear this often as a pastor. It's common for us to like look back to the type of community we had in college where you were expected to be at like two classes and everybody had free time. And they, they start their job and a 40-hour work week to 60-hour work week for some of you starts and it's, we, we think, man, how that I had the community that I had in college um, or maybe there's present suffering, right? Like the Israelites had. They were suffering in the desert. I don't want to discount the fact that they were hungry. And uh, this, is, this is kind of the season I'm in where I, I'm yearning for days before the suffering, right? Like I'm yearning for days when things were good. Oh, that I, we could just return to the beginning of the year when, when all of this mess hadn't started. When, when we were healthy, when I was safe, when I was comfortable, when we were loved. It's not bad to want those things. What we want are good things, but nostalgia can consume us and pull us out of the present reality, the present moment that God has for our lives, the, the teaching he's trying to, the, the lesson he's trying to teach us, the, the glory he's trying to show us that's due his name, the story he's trying to wrap us up in. If we fix our eyes on the past, we miss what's happening through God's goodness, even in our worst moments. The reality is that there are moments like this in your life that you look back on in shame, and there are moments in, like this in your life that you look back on with nostalgia. We're not, we're not uh, robots who just either, either you're ashamed or you're nostalgic, right? Like, 
I'm sure there are moments in your life that you look back on and think that's when things were really good and there are moments that you look back on and say, I can't get over that thing that happened to me or that I did. Let's read with new ears this text from Isaiah. It says this, this is a prophecy about Jesus. Isaiah 43, thus says the Lord who makes a way in the sea, the Red Sea, particularly a path in the mighty waters who brings forth chariot and horse, army and warrior. They lie down, they cannot rise. So that's, that's Egypt, right? They're extinguished, quenched like a wick. Remember not the former things, nor consider the things of old. Behold, I am doing a new thing. Now it springs forth. Do you not perceive it? It springs forth like living water. This is the woman at the well. I will make a way in the wilderness, a river in the desert. The wild beasts will honor me, the jackals and the ostriches. I will give water in the wilderness, rivers in the desert, to give drink to my chosen people, the people whom I formed for myself, that they might declare my praise. Isaiah brings, this passage in Isaiah particularly, brings the past of Egypt, right? The past of the, the, what we just read about the people of Israel being redeemed and being nostalgic. It brings that into the current moment of the prophecy and it foretells the woman at the well. Living water is coming. Remember not the things of the past. The Lord is doing a new thing. Why is God doing, like, he is doing a new thing that is springing forth, a new way in the wilderness, a new river of living water in the desert, a new drink for his chosen people, for them to drink deeply of and thus declare his praise. What is the new thing that God would do? Well, he would enter time. That's the primary thing. It's not the ultimate thing. It's the primary thing that God does. He, the new thing that he does, the new water that he will give his, his people is himself through his entering into time, leaving, shaking off the eternal and entering into the womb of Mary, being born like all of us were born. This is the new thing, right? Let's go back to the woman in the well. Jesus says this, Uh, In verse 13, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, the water from the well, but whoever drinks the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again, never. The water that I will give them will become in him a spring of water welling up into eternal life. The water of Jesus allows us to break free from time into something eternal. The water Jesus offers is water that alters time itself. If in those who drink of the water of Jesus, the water that he has to offer, the living water, it wells up into not just forgiveness, not just salvation, but a changed time through those things. Altered time, a life bound not by time. How can Jesus offer this? Well, Jesus is God. Jesus is God, and he enters time not primarily to just experience time and relate to us, although those things are true. The reality is our pasts are disordered with shame and nostalgia because of rebellion, right? Rebellion against God and rebellion against his order and rebellion against God and the good things that he has for us and rebellion against his authority. And it all stems from this early rebellion in the garden from our parents, Adam and Eve. And the result of that rebellion is that sin and shame have entered the world. All has gone horribly wrong with creation due to this rebellion. And so just as through one man, Adam, sin and shame enter the world, 
through Jesus, through one man, through God incarnate, reconciliation, not rebellion, reconciliation comes, which means peace with God through Jesus Christ. That's just Romans 5. So Jesus entered time. Why? Not just to experience time like us, not just to relate to us, but to reconcile us to God, to gather up our broken pasts, our disordered relationship with God, the things we have done that have caused a rift between us and God that grows deeper and deeper and deeper the farther we travel through time. Jesus comes to gather up all of that disordered past and reconcile it to God. To reconcile us to God in peace. To reconcile our past, create in us righteousness, which is necessary to have peace with God, right? Jesus died on the cross, which does what? It for, I mean, this is what we tell our kids. It, Jesus died on the cross to forgive your sins. The fancy word is to atone for sin, for all the bad things you and I could ever have done or ever would do or all the bad things that ever would be done to us. The the atonement is how God reconciles our pasts and brings us into peace or rest with God today. Jesus died for your sins. And next week when we talk about the future, we'll talk about more how the resurrection and ascension are speaking to our future how when God rises again in Christ and he ascends to the throne, there's an altered future for sure. But right now, today, the atonement, the payment for our sin and the application of God's ancient but perfect life, his righteousness are applied to us who come to him for salvation. How our past is reconciled to us, to to him. So um, what does this mean for us today? What does it mean that we are forgiven all past failures and reconciled to God, does it mean that we should just forget everything that's ever happened to us, good or bad? Does it mean that we should just never dream about how good the past was or never dwell on the shame of the past? Like, should we live as if we're a goldfish, forgetting every moment that just preceded this one? I I don't think that's the call of Scripture. And in fact, I think it's impossible to live that way. Right? I, I think it's impossible to live. Should we live as if it, the thing that comes to mind when I say think about your past, should you live as if it never happened? We can't. You can't. I can't live as if it never happened. So a reordered and redeemed past does not mean a forgotten past. It means a past that is reordered and redeemed. So for those in Christ. This means when, when our pasts are reordered and redeemed, it means like the woman in the well, our pasts no longer define us. They're no longer our identity. For those in Christ, our pasts don't define us like shame and nostalgia tell us they do. That all my glory days are behind me or, or my worst days will never not be with me. Those things don't define us anymore. Shame says you can't rise above the things you've done or the things that have happened to you. Nostalgia says nothing you do or experience will ever be better than what you've already done or experienced. The gospel tells us that Christ has forgiven all that we ever have done and all that we ever will do that could cause a rift between us and him in God. The gospel tells us that the worst thing that you've ever done in your past does not define you. Instead, Christ's life and his light and his loveliness and his righteousness now define you. Those things are your identity. Therefore, there is no greater identity 
No thing you've ever done that's greater than your identity that is, that is created in your union with Christ. That we're united with Christ in belief, through belief in him. Right, scripture says our sins are forgotten. Not in, in that they are not counted against us, but, but they become part of our story. Scars that proclaim God's goodness and grace in saving broken people to himself. People like us. So far from just being forgotten, our, our past become scars. They don't define us, but God can heal them. The gospel tells us that our better days are not behind us, right? That it's not all better back there, that, that every day in and with Jesus is a day where you are truly as loved, as known, as accepted by God as you ever will be. You get that, like, the gospel tells us that today you are as known and as accepted by God as you ever will be. This is very good news for those of us who want to earn salvation. Because there's nothing you can do to earn more acceptance from God than what you have if you've placed your faith in Christ. There's nothing more you can do. And there's nothing bad you could do to rift that to, to cause a new rift between you and God if you are truly in Christ. And so far from being in the rear view, our best and most, most fulfilled days are ahead of us when we dwell with God and one another in resurrected soul and body for eternity in a resurrected creation. Like our best days are, are well ahead of us, but, but shame and nostalgia are not the ways forward. Quite opposite, shame and nostalgia inhibit us from being present in the now. And so instead, a gospel orientation toward our past will lead to not shame and nostalgia, but gratitude and wisdom. Gratitude, and listen, I know this is hard, but stick with me. Gratitude that even in the worst moments in our life, those moments that, that seem to define us in their lowness, in their lowness Right, those moments of suffering, gratitude in that even though we have these low, dark moments in our life, that God has chosen us and forgiven us and accepted us and known us and loved us. Gratitude is possible through the gospel of Jesus Christ. How wonderful is that, that the result of belief in Jesus in what he has done as that settles deeper and deeper and deeper into your heart, shame gets smaller and gratitude gets bigger. Not we don't have to be thankful that a horrible thing happened to us, but grateful that God redeems broken people, broken things, broken scenarios. And the second wonderful result of a gospel orientation toward our past is wisdom. We learn from our mistakes. We learn from our joys. We learn from the good seasons and the bad. We learn that, oh, that was a wonderful season. I don't have to yearn for it to be back again in nostalgia and just hate my current reality so much that I just want to spend all of my waking and sleeping moments dreaming about the past and said, what makes the past wonderful? What made that past wonderful? In wisdom, in wisdom, let me learn from that and try and figure out how I can make my, future, my current reality better by inviting God to teach me. We learn from the good seasons and the bad as they draw us deeper into wisdom about life, about God and his wonderful, mysterious ways. 
So our experiences are not our primary identity, but we can learn from them and we can learn to be grateful for them. And, and so please don't hear me wrong. I'm, I'm not trying to be calloused here and just tell you like, oh, that horrible thing that happened to you, like, just be grateful. That, that's, that's not what I'm doing. Um, in fact, I think to get to that type of relationship with your past takes a lot of work. It takes a lot of outside help from community, from pastors, from counselors, from therapists. It takes a lot of internal work by inviting the Holy Spirit to heal wounds that are still very much a part of you into scars, things that are healed but, and obviously happen that you remember but not defining you, right? Like that just takes work. And so I, all I'm saying is as a people together, let's do that work. Let's do the work together. Often we have to do some work in our past to release shame and release nostalgia. That's okay. I'm not saying just get over it. Instead, in Christ, it's important for us to believe what's true about our present reality and let our belief inform how we feel about it. It's part of the work. And here's, I, I hope this is gospel hope for you this morning. When Jesus is resurrected, what do his hands look like? Well, they, they bar. They, they bear the real physical scars of the crucifixion, right? He tells Thomas to put his finger in the hole, in the wound. Why? Why does the, the worst part of Jesus' story for himself, it's an amazing part for us, but the, the, lo, the, the only time Jesus says, why have you forsaken me, Father? And it's true was when he hung on that cross. And yet, in a resurrected body, he bears the scar of his lowest moment. Why does the scar carry over to the resurrected and redeemed Savior and King's body, right? Like Jesus is risen in full glory to take full authority and sit on a throne where he currently sits in a real human body that's been redeemed and resurrected and is therefore eternal and it has scars on it. Because in all that evil, all that pain, all that sorrow of the cross, God took what was meant for evil, darkness, and destruction, and death, and used it for reconciliation and redemption. He used the worst part of Christ's life for the sake of reconciliation, for the sake of loveliness, of peace, of proclamation for us. So far from being forgotten, Jesus' scars are part of his kingly reign and lordly, lovely salvation. They tell the story of the cost of grace and mercy. Jesus' scars do not proclaim that he is dead. They proclaim that he is risen. The scars of our past, our stories, they aren't erased, but they are redeemed in Jesus. And if you believe in Jesus, if you believe that his death life and death and resurrection are applied to you to save you, then your scars do not proclaim your death as well. They proclaim your life. This is why we tell testimonies at baptism, and often they include horrible parts of our past. Why would we do that on a celebratory day? It's because the scars no longer proclaim death, they proclaim life. They lead to gratitude and wisdom in the present. What a marvelous story, and we're going to see this all three sermons of the series. But at the table, what do we do? We remember, right? We remember the past. We remember our sin and the cost of that forgiveness. We remember that Jesus' body was broken and his blood shed, a real historical event that happened on our behalf. We remember. But at the table, what else do we do? We look forward to the future. We look for 
forward to this hope in the reconciliation of all things, the renewal of all things, and the wedding feast that accompanies that renewal. And so the table is a, it's a statement that says your past and your future are met in this current present. Everything you've done has been forgiven through the broken and shed blood, and everything that was good back there all will be redeemed in a future that's unwavering and eternal through the living water, namely the blood of Christ. And so at the table, past and future meet and inform our now. We do it every week because we need to be reminded what's gone on with our past and what we look forward to in our future. In the now, we feast in remembrance and we feast in hope. We feast with gratitude and wisdom that our past no longer condemn us and that Jesus has reconciled us to himself by entering time and redeeming our past. Let's pray.